Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. Welcome, Jonathan Siddharth to the Reboot Chronicles. He is the CEO and co-founder of Turing, an AI-powered D-Jobs platform that connects professional remote software engineers with the world's largest corporations. The Silicon Valley company itself is 100% remote with about 600 employees that provide organizations access to about 2 million developers in 150 countries that offer hundreds of capabilities and skill levels on demand. Having raised about $140 million, so far anyway, uh, Turning's last round reached unicorn status with a $4 billion valuation. Not too bad. Jonathan, good to see you. Great to see you, Dean. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah. Always good to have you on. Um, you know, I, you, you, you've, you've run a lot of companies. I've done a lot of companies. You know, I'm more the second stage guy. You founded this. You could have done anything. Why? Why did you choose this? Uh, why get into the, uh, I'll just dummy it down for the audience here, uh, the recruiting business. Was that like really top of mind for you when you're back in 2018? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Dean, so it all starts with the mission. So our mission at Turing is to use AI to unleash the world's untapped human potential. We feel it's a pretty inspiring mission. And at Turing, we are building the world's first AI-powered tech services company. Imagine an Accenture, but built on a foundation of AI. And it was a combination of um, a personal fascination that me and my co-founder had, uh, my co-founder Vijay had with AI, uh, the size of the market, uh, and uh, our own uh, story from um, our first startup. So Turing's my second startup. Uh, my co-founder Vijay and I had started another company before this. Uh, and there were some lessons learned from that startup that uh, was key in shaping um, uh, w- what became Turing. Uh, would that be helpful to go over sort of what the moment of inception was? You know, I, I usually ask that as the last question, but let's get right into it. What are the biggest mistakes you learned from your last startup before we get into where you're going. I love that. That's great, Tadine. So my last startup was an AI company that I started when I was at Stanford at grad school. Uh, I was specializing in AI. The year was uh, uh, 2007. This was the time when everybody called it machine learning. Way back. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it was also that time at Stanford when all the professors were actually uh, teaching and they hadn't yet gone off and started all these wonderful AI companies. So it was amazing to see folks like Andrew Wing, Daphne Collar, Sebastian Thrun, all teaching at Stanford. It was such a wonderful time. And I remember being in uh, a machine learning class where it would usually start at the time with Andrew spending like um, an entire lecture just on showing people that um, machine learning was already being used in so many different ways that you might already not be aware of. It was sort of his cell to get students excited about uh, AI. And now what a world we live in where that's no longer needed. Like, um, so my first startup, like, uh, by the way, you were, you were very lucky to have him teaching your (laughs) class. I, I teach like AI and machine learning to MBA students and I, and mine's very high level predictive prescription analytics, but, but I would actually use his, some of his material with permission because it, 
it's brilliant stuff. So you were you were down into the weeds. It sounds like yes, I was down in the weeds, and at the time, I I thought I would I wanted to do a PhD, um, and uh. Uh, the usual the radioactive spider that uh, wanders <laughs> Stanford's computer science department with me <laughs> and my co-founder, and we 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 started an AI company instead, and. Turing Dean was really born from one crucial lesson learned in my first startup, which was the power of uh, uh, distributed teams. Uh, And I remember the year pretty distinctly. It was 2012 uh, when we were thinking about scaling our engineering team. And it was really hard to look for great engineers in Silicon Valley because you were in this fist fight with these these uh, not just one 800 pound gorilla, but like a whole army of 800 pound gorillas, like a whole 12 pack. It's, it was awful. I remember very hard to uh, recruit, very hard to recruit. It's such a limited talent pool and that's sort of overfished. So we made the um, strategic decision to look beyond Silicon Valley for Silicon Valley caliber talent. And I was fortunate to work with some wonderful engineers from, uh, from Poland, from Siberia, from Canada, from India. And this uh, radical notion, it sounded radical at the time, that Silicon Valley caliber engineers can be found outside of Silicon Valley, in other parts of the US, other parts of the world, which was foreign at that time. That was key to making our first company successful. So that company had a successful acquisition. After selling the company, I took some time off and uh, I wanted to recharge, figure out what I wanted to do next. And after after some uh, after like getting the uh, my energy back, uh, it became clear both to me and my co-founder that we wanted to do another company. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, we had two ideas. Like one was um, uh, an idea to use AI to make sales more efficient. Uh, imagine mm-hmm. Horace Gong, that that type of thing, like an AI that automatically analyzed sales conversations to learn best practices from one salesperson that you can teach other sales leaders uh, to sort of up-level. And the other idea was the idea that became uh, Turing. Uh, And I remember at the time, like uh, there was um, this girl that I was dating uh, and and Dean, you must know the, uh, you must know the Pioneer um, Club, right? Like the, in Woodside. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, so I was at the Pioneer and and she was asking me what what company I was gonna start next. And I described both. Um, And she told me, uh, Jonathan, you sounded, uh, 10x more excited about company number two, which was basically Turing. And I yeah. didn't even realize it at the time. At that time, I thought both ideas were sort of equal. Uh, and the year was 2018. Um, and we were, uh, uh, we were entrepreneurs in residence at Foundation Capital, this venture capital firm that had invested in Uber, Netflix, et cetera. Uh, Ashu Garg, the GP there, was, um, was super excited about the, the Turing vision. So we partnered with foundation and at this time it was very contrarian because uh, the world did not believe that companies could be remote first by default. Um, and AI really wasn't as, um, as popular as it is now. And I think we benefited no, from no. those two. You were, you were dealing with two unknowns really distributed teams is what they used to call it. Correct. And then now it's all remote. They, they, they love the word remote, which I actually don't like it. It's a bad connotation yeah yeah and and ai was just in its infancy that's right that's right and and i recall dean like at those times um and today of course turing has uh raised more than 140 million most recently we've raised at a 4 billion valuation cap 
and prior to that, like at a 1.1 billion post. But at that time, I recall investors basically um, even asking me the question, hey, could a company really operate without an office, right? And this is like 2018. And at that time, like companies like GitLab, uh, yep. Buffer, Automatic, et cetera, they were kind of the rebel alliance. Um, and now it's like the world has shifted. I feel like the default now is distributed teams meet as needed. Um, and of course, for specialized products, like there are hardware companies, unfortunately, maybe you have to go nine to five, commute every day, work from an office. Um, and, it, and it's it's so exciting. <laughs> picking on the, don't pick on the hardware companies, maybe retailers. But, you know, the it, every company now, every tech company says, they say they're an AI company. And yeah. the market's saying that and the VCs love it. I, I don't subscribe to it completely because I've had, I've interviewed some of them and they're just, they're just catching up. They're just, you know, it's all the talk at cocktail parties and they're like, oh, we need a strategy. Uh, companies like yours and others like, well, it's in our DNA. We started with it. And yeah. um, so two things, you know, one is what is the next generation tech company and why is AI so important? But, and then, then I want to just go into how does it actually make you more competitive? Because there's a lot of companies out there doing this. Finding remote talent is, they've all let's just say woken up to that when you were already there. <laughs> so people are coming after you, it sounds like. But yeah, two questions. Let's go with that. Let's go with the, is every company really going to be an AI company? Yeah. And, and Dean, that's a fascinating question. And let me share what I hear in conversations with C-suite execs, like CEOs, CTOs, CIOs of Fortune 500 companies. Yep. So our view is that AI transformation is the new digital transformation. Every company is going to need an AI strategy. Every company, uh, almost every company has to become an AI company. Uh, the degree may vary. Maybe you have to become an 80% uh, AI company, or maybe it's a 30% AI company, but you cannot ignore AI. Every product is fundamentally an AI product. Like if you think of any product, um, five apps that come to your mind, I can, we can sort of dissect it and we can think through where AI either is already being used by the company or will become a big part of that company. Right. AI is transforming the way every company operates um, from automotive to healthcare, to financial services, to, to telecommunications, to media. And traditional tech services companies were built in a different era. If you look at Accenture, TCS, Wipro, Cognizant, et cetera, they relied on manual sourcing and vetting of engineers, like literally sending buses to engineering campuses and interviewing people. Um, they relied on manual matching and they relied on what I would call manual coding and manual delivery of projects. Right? At Turing, we asked ourselves, uh, what would an AI-powered Accenture look like? Uh, and Turing is uh, tech services reimagined from the ground up with AI. So what does that mean? It means three things. Yeah. It means automated sourcing of developers. So Turing has 2 million developers on the platform, growing by 80,000 developers every month. Uh, to put that in context, there's like 27 million software developers on the planet. Right? Uh, and second, we use AI for automatically evaluating software engineers and matching them with opportunities. Uh, we use um, a machine learning algorithm called Gradient Boosted Decision Trees uh, with uh, uh, some of the machine learning features computed uh, by deep learning. Uh, and what I'm excited about is in the last um, uh, three months, 
we've kicked off a new project called Turing GPT to accelerate the productivity of a software engineering team. We want to build the world's fastest software development team. That's It's like every software engineer, product manager, data scientist having an AI-powered exoskeleton. So it's automated sourcing, number two, AI-powered vetting and matching, and number three, AI-accelerated delivery. So you want to move from the sourcing, I get the matching and vetting, um, actually to helping organizations manage their development schedules and and make it more efficient because God knows it needs it. Um, a lot of these big companies already have massive, you know, software companies that are right down the street from you that monitor and manage and project management, all that stuff. So, uh, so you're jumping in and competing with them a little bit. Is that, that is correct, Dean. Like companies. It makes, it makes sense because it's full cycle. Otherwise you're just a recruiting firm. I was right. kind of making fun of that. That was, I was making fun of that in the introduction of the question. Um, so that, that makes sense. What kind of challenges are you running into there? Cause that now you're getting into their sandbox. That is correct. And you, you were in the AHR sandbox. Now you're in the core. That's, that's right. And, uh, so companies come to us, uh, usually R and D teams at companies, like the product engineering teams at companies. And we've been fortunate to help companies like Disney, Johnson Johnson, uh, Rivian, Coinbase, many, many well-known companies, including some very well-known AI labs. And they come to Turing uh, for three things. The first is uh, staffing, where we deliver vetted talent. The second is services, where we deliver projects. So we take over delivery of the project too. So to build an entire product or a part of a product. And the third is advisory services. So we are helping companies think through their AI strategy, like what should their roadmap be? If you're a bank, how should you be thinking about generative AI? What parts of your um, uh, offerings could become more efficient, more relevant to to your clients? Um, So so that's where we help. And in terms of the challenges, I would say the main challenges for um, that, uh, that, uh, that, I mean, at at every step in a startup, you're going to have to solve challenges um, as you keep, keep leveling up. Uh, yep. I would say like for us, um, it's, um, it's basically like uh, in 2021, there is a certain sort of mindset companies had in terms of uh, hiring and, and what they were building. Um, everyone was just focused on growth. Um, I think for us, like what we are seeing is 2022, as uh, Zuckerberg proclaimed for Meta was like the year of efficiency. I think a lot of companies are going through that. Uh, and what we are doing is we are trying to figure out. Actually, that was that, that was twenty three for him. Twenty two is the year of wasting money on <laughs> on three uh, <laughs> D worlds. But well, we digress. But yeah. yeah, that's a great point. So hundreds of companies, not from 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 Google, Microsoft, Meta on down, have laid off tens of thousands of people. Okay, so they're not all engineers. There was a lot of cutting in peripheral departments, but there are a lot of tech people on the street, so to speak. Um, so that's probably fueling your 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 you know supply side, right? All right? What about the demand side? Are you seeing in the next few years uh, people companies saying, "Hey, I'd rather just do on demand work through you guys," as you move more into an Accenture, you know, big four kind of space, or are they actually hiring real full time people through the platform, or is it more temporary? Uh, so on the uh, so on the demand side, um, I think what's happening is people are realizing that a platform like Turing is the most cost-efficient way to scale your engineering team. So if you were building your engineering team in Silicon Valley 
versus building it in the talent cloud on top of Turing, you probably save about um, roughly between one third to, I, w- I would say between roughly around one third, right? So, you, so there's one way to think about it. For the same amount of capital, you can be deploying to yeah, I get that. the yep. team. Or, and, and, and why is that? It's a, it's a bit, I mean, can I go in and select by country? Because I, I know just being a tech guy like you, I know which countries have the, you know, what the, the pay rates are compared to like Washington State or, or Silicon Valley. Or is it that your fully loaded costs are just more efficient or both? So it's uh, it, it's both. Uh, I would say the the primary lever is uh, uh, we open up the talent pool from the rest of the U.S. from the rest of the world, uh, and we find wonderful, wonderful developers in places that nobody's heard of, right? Um, right? And I think there's another secular theme, which is the democratization of a computer science education. It used to be. 20, 30 years ago, that maybe to get a world-class computer science education, you had to go to uh, Stanford or uh, Berkeley or MIT or one of those top schools. Now, I feel like um, a lot of those schools have put their curriculum online on on MOOCs like Coursera, Udacity, etc. I think a world-class computer science education is now more accessible than ever before. And some of the technologies, open source technologies, are also uh, no longer sort of uh, locked into uh, Silicon Valley, like React developers are worldwide, like uh, Python developers are worldwide. Um, it's not like there are these SAP engineers in the small pocket in, in this part of the world. Uh, I think that's also helped. Uh, open source right. has helped. Uh, so we have this amazing global pool of software engineers and people have also, um, I mean, it, it feels so, um, it was just 10 years ago, I believe, that Mark and Reason wrote the, that software is eating the world. It, now it's so obvious, right? It's so obvious. We all know that software is eating the world. Every industry is a software industry. Every company is a tech company. And so it's created a lot of interest in computer science. So a lot more people are taking computer science as, um, as an engineering degree, uh, particularly in, in, uh, in, in many, many parts of the world. So this has created a ton of supply in, uh, in geographies where there isn't a lot of demand. Um, so so. But both sides benefit, like for these, for example, if you're a developer who was living 100 miles from Sao Paulo in Brazil, there was no better time today than to be a software engineer because every company in the U.S. in Silicon Valley would love to have you work. So all you need is broad, yeah, all you need is broadband, that's for sure. <laughs> what about the impact of, without getting too geeky here and technical, but low-code, no-code, for those that don't know, is a, a way where even someone like me can actually pull something off. Um, so that trend has made it easier for people to learn. Uh, has that impacted the types of engineers you're actually placing, or is that just more, you know, residential kind of coding? Or do you see that coupled with AI, where it's, you know, I, I can't remember the stat of code now that's generated by uh, AI. I think it's in the north of forty six percent or something. If you look at GitHub, right? What? Yeah, what's what's going on there? And how's it impacting? Yeah, I mean, so um, I've, I've not seen a ton of demand for low-code, no-code application development from at least the kind of companies we work with, like product engineering companies. However, you're, yeah, you're, look, you're looking for hardcore, you're looking for hardcore developers. Correct, correct. However, you're making an important point, uh, Dean. I do think AI-accelerated development is the new mm-hmm. low-code. Uh, like I do feel like with the current state of the art in 
uh, AI-assisted development. We, are, we believe junior developers can now be at least one or two levels more productive than, uh, than they were without AI. Um, I mean, a, a provocative uh, a prediction for the future is that we might we might no longer have junior developers. Like you, you kind of envision a junior developer as this person who's fresh out of school, has to spend a couple of years to sort of figure out how real world projects actually work. But now every software engineer is going to have an AI co-pilot in their pocket or, or more, uh, more accurately inside their IDE. That's going to like help them write better code. And it's possible an IC3, an individual contributor level three, will now operate at the level of a, uh, an IC4, an IC4 perhaps at the level of an IC5. Uh, so oh. I, I, I do think... Um, AI- that's, like your, uh, that's like your PT pretending to be your doctor in, the, <laughs> in medical terms. Maybe not that strict, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's a little bit of an analog to self-driving cars. I think... Um, exactly, yeah. But how do you... That's a tough one to vet because I could put all my cred credentials up on your site and and but i'm getting so assisted you know so what's his assist level on ai well dean's is 80 percent because he's he's not that good <laughs> he's a level two programmer yeah that, how does that uh, that's going to change your business model a little bit i think yeah i mean uh, you're right about that and we've had to fundamentally rethink how we evaluate software engineers in the era of ai assisted development uh yeah. the like uh, there was this recent study of how uh, a GPT-powered system was able to pass Google software engineering interviews. So that's true. Yep. But we also... Exactly. I heard, heard about that one. Yeah. <laughs> and they are... Extre- so is Amazon. They're both extremely intense interviewing process companies. Correct. But it's also true that uh, a GPT-powered system is, no long, is not at the level of replacing the role of a software engineer. So it speaks more to how we vet software engineers. So we yeah. had to think through uh, different ways of evaluating a software engineer's problem-solving, critical thinking skills beyond like rote programming. I feel like rote programming, totally agree. more mundane, bookish stuff is going to like become outdated. Like just like, uh, so are you putting them through aptitude tests and stuff? Uh, that that to me that to me was worth paying for. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not exactly aptitude tests, but uh, something that mimics more real world, um, we call it practical software engineering. Uh, nice. If these two statements are true, that AI can crack the interview process, AI cannot do the job, then that tells us something about how good our interview process does at emulating yes. um, yeah. what, what you actually do on the job. So we try to make our vetting a little more practical, a little more realistic in terms of what what an engineer would would uh, would uh, encounter and we are also like uh, evaluating letting the developer use chat gpt like systems when they write code but then we would ask them uh, questions about uh, the code that they wrote so did, did you really understand what you what you just wrote or did you just right. ask uh, ask for help from this uh, ai black box Let's jump into a, a disruption a little bit. I, I have specific definitions that I <laughs> that I test people on. Um, is it really truly business disruption? Means that you're inflicting pain on someone, competitiveness. But before we get to that, um, real quick, what kind of stats are, are we talking about? Like how many 
people have you placed? What do you tell like when you're in pitching to a customer, what do you say? Hey, we've placed this, this many engineers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a few things, uh, Dean. So firstly, we've uh, more than 900 clients have trusted Turing with their transformation journeys. These include, yeah, saw that. Yep. Uh, these include both fortune 500 companies as well as high growth startups. Um, and, uh, companies use Turing for staffing services and advisory services. Um, and uh, uh, we have a 90% trial success rate, meaning, uh, Dean, if you were for your next company, and Dean, you built quite a few companies, for your next company, yeah. hoping you build it on top. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. This is too easy. No, but I was just curious, how many placements have you done? Just rough, rough numbers, like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Uh, so it... it uh, I don't have that number off the top of my top of my head. Uh, the um, uh, we are we we kind of uh, the the one number we talk in public is about uh, our revenue growth. Like we are yeah. the fastest growing tech services company of all time. We went from one to hundred million in revenues in a little over three years. Uh, right. So so we talk about that, and for our clients, we usually are much more specific. For example, Dean, if uh, you are revenues, revenues fine. That's good. Most most don't want to talk about that. At, uh, you're not in the stealth stage anymore. But okay, so I just wanted that as a grounding to give us an idea of the scale because you you got to get to mass scale here, and you are going to. But what? So when you look at in you know disruption, it's like disrupting the recruiting industry. I think you're going to lap some people. Just you know, you're going to pass them by, um, especially the autom- you know the automated ones. But many of them are. You know, whether it's an Indeed or someone else, they're all they're all playing with tools now. Um, but as you go into the, hey, I'm going to start messing with the big five, the big six, the big, let's just call them the big 10, actually, consulting services companies that are doing this work for every big vertical from financial services through medical, all, you know, where all the big money is around the globe. To me, that's where you're going to, or seems like that's where you want to inflict the biggest pain and that's where you're going to get your biggest valuation um, enhancing and all that stuff. So, that is just riddled with challenges. What um, what are you expecting there? What's that going to look like? For instance, I always look at you know good partnership strategies. We're actually bundling with them versus actually trying to kill each other. And um, <laughs> not to answer the question, sorry. But so yeah, tell us a little bit about that because that yeah. to me is that's that's a pretty exciting model for you guys. That's exactly right. And like I said, like we're building the world's first AI-powered tech services company, and we're competing with like the Accenture TCS, Wipro, Infosys of the world. Uh, we disrupt them on three dimensions: speed, quality, and efficiency. The speed comes from when you have a pool of two million developers to choose from, uh, you can fulfill something faster. Then even if you're Accenture, you have like billable headcount of like 700,000, and then you have to check what percentage are on the bench, who's really available. It's a much smaller pool. So we disrupt them. Yeah, and they've got tons of overhead, and it's overpriced, and it's not just Accenture, it's everyone. We've had most of the, the heads of these companies on, but I get, I get you can run laps around them cost-wise. Um, how about quality, though? You know, they've got built-in bench ready to go, and you're constantly sourcing. So the challenge is... Top engineers don't want to work for an Accenture TCS or a Wipro. They're mm-hmm. seen as uh, uh, outsourced companies that are focused on cost savings, not really in building yeah. world-class products. So at Turing, our mission is uh, to uh, use AI to unleash the world's untapped human potential. But we are in the business of uh, helping great engineers level up in their uh, career growth. 
like um, like we we have this uh, saying at Turing that if there ever was a love letter for engineering, it would be it would be it would be Turing. We're a company built by engineers to hire and manage and grow engineering careers. So I feel like we have an advantage with attracting Silicon Valley caliber engineers from all over the world, since we care deeply about engineers' success and engineering uh, growth. Uh, right. I almost think of Turing as kind of analogous to how uh, Nike care, cared about great athletes and great athletics, like in the same way Turing cares about great engineers and great engineering. Yeah, it's even better. It's even better than Nike. You're not selling them stuff. You're essentially enabling the gig economy. This is actually, the gig economy is probably a 1.0 term. So we need a new term for the next generation of it, you know, 2.0, because you are a platform that kind of makes that frictionless and, um, but can also bring it to a scale into uh, into the market. As you look ahead, like where do you see yourself in a couple of years, and what do you think is going to be your biggest challenge? Being re- you know being real being a growth guy myself, it's it's always uh, it always sounds good, and then you get halfway into the year, which is uh, whatever you know, or halfway into your cycle of three years. Where where do you want to be in about three years? I think the biggest challenge is uh, going to be. Um, I mean, I think of. Turing's journey as going through three phases. Phase one was build a billion dollar company. We've done that. Phase two for us is get to a billion dollars in revenue, right? And it's 100 to 1 billion revenue sprint. And at some point we'll go public. Phase three is uh, for me is building an enduring company that can last for decades after that. I grew up admiring companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera. That's the kind of company we want to build. Now in phase two, you kind of notice that the machine that got you from zero to a hundred million is not the same machine that you need for like hundred to a billion in revenues. There are exactly. some parts that need to be optimized, some parts that need to be updated, some parts you kind of can't do things the same way anymore. And the challenge always is like preserving the good from that from that phase while making the changes, the right systems and processes for that next level of growth. Uh, I think of it like uh, phase one was the black pearl, the pirate ship. Uh, phase two <laughs> is the destroyer, right? And so we are in the process of building the destroyer and it's a lot of editing, right? Like the, it's a lot of yeah. what you keep doing, start doing, stop doing. And those are, the, those are the challenges. For me, the thing that I think about is how do we build that foundation for this wonderful business that's, we've kind of, we've exited the, 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 the stratosphere but how do we leave the solar system now? Like the to what do we build to get to a billion in revenues? Uh, so that's what right. I think about. Like I'm always thinking about like the all the things that could possibly go wrong in the next year, in the next three years, and how do we mitigate those risks uh, today? Right. Sounds good, Jonathan. Really appreciate you being on. Good. Great, uh, great company. Great. Thank you for having me, Dean. And, and for your listeners, if you're interested in um, uh, in deploying great engineers either to augment your existing team or to take an entire team from Turing. You can go to Turing.com and check us out. Yeah, it'll be, links will be there. Uh, You've been listening to Jonathan Siddharth, who is the CEO and co-founder of Turing. This is Dean Tobias with the Reboot Chronicles. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're going to see you soon.